This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about white evangelical support for Trump again in 2020, how abortion has become the one-drop rule for white evangelicals, and The Last Dance, a documentary about Michael Jordan and the Bulls. First up, my favorite part of the podcast, because I get to hear directly from you, the reviews. We're at 275 reviews, up from 270 last episode. Thank you so much. I read all of them and keep them coming because maybe I will read yours on the next episode. This review comes from Mandalay LAC, and it's a little longer, but I appreciate the thoughtfulness. She says, uh, much needed perspective. I was introduced to Jamar Tisby through a recommended purchase via Amazon of the color of compromise. Thanks for the book shout out. I purchased the book and started researching Mr. Tisby and following his social media. In this podcast, Jamar has helped me further understand Christianity in relation to racial equity and white supremacy. I have often wondered how actions of the evangelicals in regards to social justice issues are at all justified, and I've struggled with any alignment with the group. I grew up being taught that the evangelical church was the only right way, and once I became an adult and started investigating and researching actions and really studying the scriptures, I found myself uneasy. In this podcast, Jamar Tisby brings clarity to the gospel and how to relate to issues of social justice. This podcast has brought me a much-needed perspective. Thank you so much for that review, Mandalay. I think a lot of folks are in your same boat, having grown up in or around evangelical circles, and then through some experiences, through some different learning and, and exposures, they've come to question some of the core tenets of what they were taught. Thankfully, many retain faith in Jesus Christ, but also revise or decolonize or uh, grow in their understanding of the scriptures and who Jesus is, especially as it relates to race and justice. So as an added, added bonus, and this was completely random, uh, Mandalay is the winner of our latest book giveaway. Uh, you have won the book From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century by William Darity and A. Kirsten Mullen. I guarantee uh, this was um, not my doing. Uh, I picked the review before I randomly picked the book winner, and it just so happened to be the same person. So, uh, Mandalay, I will email you for a mailing address, and congratulations. And brothers and sisters, I have come across so many great books lately be on the lookout for future book giveaway. Now, let's get to the news. Al Mohler puts his voice behind Donald Trump. Do you know of a man named Al Mohler? If not, you should. He's the longtime president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. 
through the seminary as well as the affiliated undergraduate institution, Boyce College, not to mention the hundreds of books, thousands of sermons, and other resources the professors produce, it's not an exaggeration to say that Moeller and his leadership influence hundreds of thousands of Christians. Moeller recently made news for all but saying that he's going to vote for Donald Trump this November in the 2020 presidential election. In an Ask Me Anything segment on a YouTube video connected to the T4G conference, Moeller said this. Uh, for the rest of my life, I'm probably just going to vote for the, the uh, I mean, unless the moral situation changes, and that's always possible, not likely, though. Look at, at the trajectory of these parties over decades. I'm not likely to live long enough for anything to be fundamentally different, which means I am just going to end up voting for the Republican presidential candidate and uh, campaigning in every way I know against. And, and again, I made every argument on the briefing I could against Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I'm going to be, I already have been, as as clear as I think I could possibly be about the impossibility of, uh, of voting for the Democratic candidate, in my view. Just, and it's not, there's no just, it's not just over the sanctity of life issue, but just consider what's being, that party swerved so far to the left and is now, even on religious liberty issues, so antagonistic uh, to biblical Christianity. And uh, when you consider what happened, uh, you know, with the, the, the contraception mandate in the Obama years, and you consider the, the transgender revolution, the whole LGBTQ uh, collision with religious liberty, you think about the future of the courts, and yes, the sanctity of human life. I don't think anyone is actually a single-issue voter, and I say that because they're related issues. But the fact is, uh, I don't believe you actually, I don't, I, I, I don't understand the people who would say, yes, I'm entirely for uh, the uh, transgender revolution at the expense of religious liberty, but I'm pro-life. In other words, th those people may be eccentric, but that is not a normal worldview pattern. First, let me say this. Quoting this Al Mohler video is not me doing a hit piece or a hate piece. I've had that done to me, and I do not intend to replicate the trolling, the bad faith, etc. I've met Al Mohler in person. He was hospitable. He's got a lot of good things going on. And uh, political disagreement with him, even a stark one, is not a reason for anyone to dehumanize or demean another image bearer. So it's not that. I cite Moeller specifically simply because he's such a prominent leader in certain circles and because his claims, I think, are representative of an important sector of white evangelicals. So in the video, Moeller does not explicitly state that he's going to vote for Trump, but he basically says it. He says, quote, I'm just going to end up voting for the Republican presidential candidate, which, of course, is going to be Trump. So you might be asking, well, Jamar, he's a white Southern Baptist evangelical, right? What is news about him voting for Trump? Didn't 80 percent of white evangelicals who voted cast their ballot for Trump in 2016? Well, you're absolutely right. The support for Trump among evangelicals has been and remains the highest of any religious demographic. And so what's news about this? Well, what's news about this is, first, Moeller is the head of a large Southern Baptist enti entity. And so he's all but endorsed Trump. And that situates him and his organization, I would argue, in a particular political place. And number two, in 2016, Moeller was one of the few outspoken never-Trump voters who was, you know, a, a leader of any prominence. He took a stance that character counts and that Trump's lifestyle and words disqualified him from being a candidate that Moeller could support. 
Well, after three years, three and a half years, the president has only proven that this is the case. But Mueller's reasoning seems to be, since this man is in office and the Democratic Party has so many issues with which he disagrees, then he is forced to vote for the Republican presidential candidate. Bear in mind that this is not the only option. One might vote third party, write in a candidate, or abstain from voting as many white evangelicals did in 2016 and they're contemplating for 2020. Now, the most pessimistic rendering of this change of heart from Moeller is that he's angling to be elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention next year and that supporting Trump garners him more favor among SBC voters than opposing him. I don't know if there's any credence to that at all. I will say, however, that if you are looking for a prominent office in the Southern Baptist Convention that is elected, it's probably a safer bet for you to support Trump than oppose him. So I think at least that much is true. Um, I just want to focus on what Mueller actually said. His primary reason for voting for Trump, it would seem, is because of his anti-abortion stance, which Mueller calls the sanctity of life issue. But Mueller also lists other factors, namely the appointing of conservative judges and issues of religious liberty, especially as they relate to LGBTQ rights and Christian institutions, such as the one he leads. Now, I'll talk more about white evangelicals and abortion in the next segment for now. Let me focus on the consequences of Mueller's public alignment with the Republican Party and Trump. So I posted a tweet, and in it I wrote, What constantly saddens me, among many things, is that so many fail to realize, or just don't care, that supporting Trump puts a wrecking ball to racial justice. Black folks listen to the political reasoning of white evangelicals, and we come away thinking, well, they're okay supporting a racist. They're all right with policies that make life harder for me and others who look like me. All this racial reconciliation stuff stops at the voting booth. Now, that may sound harsh, but listen to some data. In the same tweet, I linked to an article that all of my listeners should read. It's by Campbell Robertson of the New York Times, and it's called A Quiet Exodus, Why Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. In that article, Robertson quotes Michael Emerson, who co-authored the landmark book Divided by Faith. And Emerson said, the election itself was the single most harmful event to the whole movement of reconciliation in at least the past 30 years. I don't think he's exaggerating. In Emerson's latest research, he finds that while black membership in multiracial churches has increased, attendance plunged uh, between 2012 and 2019, especially after 2016. So in an article in Outreach Magazine, Emerson is reported as saying, quote, the percentage of blacks attending multiracial churches significantly declined between 2012 and 2019. Back in 1998, black attendance at, at uh, multiracial churches was about 16%. It jumped up to 27% in 2012, but then it dropped to 21% in 2019. And so in a relatively short amount of time, we see a significant decrease among black attendees at multiracial churches, this quiet exodus. And a lot of this, I'm sure, has to do with white evangelical support for Trump. I'll have to do a whole episode on multiracial, multiethnic, or multicultural churches. Uh, but on social media, I'm just trying to bring attention to the fact that if your politics leads you to support Trump, then it has severe and negative implications for race relations in the church.
In that same tweet thread, I also cite an op-ed by Lawrence Ware, who is a black Baptist pastor and also a professor. A couple of years ago, he announced he renounced his membership in the Southern Baptist Convention, and here's why. He said, I can no longer be part of an organization that is complicit in the disturbing rise of the so-called alt-right, whose members support the abhorrent policies of Donald Trump. And so he saw his participation in the Southern Baptist Convention as a black man and uh, a citizen even as complicit in, in some disturbing trends. So what I'm saying is that as a direct consequence of evangelical supporting Trump, who represents for many black people the embodiment of racism in politics, it actually pushes black people away from predominantly white churches and denominations. Right after Mueller's statement, I actually received two messages from black pastors and Christians saying that they were leaving their church or they would no longer consider the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary as a viable place for black students. They weren't going to go to the seminary if the school's president supported Trump, nor would they recommend the seminary to other black people. So again, more actual hard evidence that this is having an adverse impact on people of color, especially black people. And so the question is, are white evangelicals all right with this? And I mean specifically the ones who say they're committed to racial reconciliation. It goes back to what sociologists and others have been telling us for years. The way Christians, particularly white evangelicals, think about race can actually be counterproductive at times. Why? Because people committed to the beliefs that white evangelicals espouse often think of racism mainly in individualistic terms. The problem is personal bigotry toward other people. The solution then is also individualistic. If some of my best friends are black, then I can't be racist. Or if I do not personally have ill will or treat people of color badly, then I'm doing my part to fight racism. That's how the argument goes. But absent from their accounts is the idea that racism can be embedded in policies and therefore how we vote can either advance or retract racial justice. But this isn't the whole story, because white evangelicals do think in systemic terms when it comes to certain issues, just not racial issues. As Mueller indicated, he's looking at policy and system issues such as who the judges are, the consequences of Roe v. Wade as a policy, so it's selective thinking in terms of what counts as a systemic or institutional issue. I mean, we can go back in history and look at uh, issues of prayer in school and Bible reading in school, and that was a legislative issue and cause that many white evangelicals took up. We can go back further to issues of prohibition and, of course, even further to the Civil War, which was certainly a political issue where uh, Southern evangelicals supported uh, the slave owning and protecting confederacy. And so, again, what I'm saying is it's a selective thinking in terms of what counts as systemic or institutional issues. So, folks, what I'm saying is get ready. It's 2020, another presidential election year. This time, Donald Trump is not some wacky outlier who surprised even himself by winning the presidency. He is now the incumbent. We know who he was as a citizen, and now we know who he is as the president. If white evangelicals continue to throw their support behind him, then I think it will be even worse than in 2016 as far as race relations in the church. A majority of black folks and other people of color never supported this man, 
And now after three and a half years of seeing more of the same, we are beyond done with him and what he represents. We're also weary of churches and denominations and Christian institutions that continue to fall in line behind him for various reasons. Whatever your rationale for supporting the current president, just know that it makes racial reconciliation and racial justice a near impossibility. When a people does not feel heard or seen, that people will not long tolerate such deafness and invisibility. It's not that we're abandoning the faith or abandoning hope that white Christians might come to a deeper understanding of racial justice. It's just that more and more of us will find other spaces that affirm and support us in the meantime. What I've always said is that people should vote how they want to vote. I'm not making a pitch for Republicans to become Democrats or vice versa. We just have to own the consequences of our votes. Voting is complex and people should vote their conscience. But that doesn't absolve us from responsibility. Your vote has consequences. When it comes to white evangelicals voting for and supporting Trump, it has inflicted incalculable harm to race relations. And that was true in 2016, and it will continue to be true in 2020. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Let's talk about abortion and voting. I said earlier that I'd address abortion as it relates to Al Mohler's decision to vote for the Republican presidential candidate, so let's get into it now. I posted something else on Twitter. You should really follow at Jamar Tisby on Twitter. That's where uh, sometimes I get saucy. I get in these like seasons where I'm like, I'm just going to say it. And uh, it always leads to interesting conversation. This was one of those weeks. So on Twitter, I posted uh, another uh, tweet that caused a lot of discussion and debate. I said, quote, I think pro-life Christians should distinguish between overturning Roe v. Wade and reducing the number of abortions. They are not, in fact, the same. And recognizing this might significantly change the political calculus of some. So first, let's look at the data. Legislators passed Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion in 1973. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which began measuring these data in 1969, abortion rates spiked after Roe v. Wade and reached their peak in the 1980s. Mind you, this is under the Republican administration of President Ronald Reagan. So that tells you... Simply having a Republican in office doesn't necessarily reduce abortions. And the fact that Roe v. Wade is still legal despite several Republican presidents and administrations also says that having a Republican in the White House does not mean that he will fight to overturn Roe v. Wade. The overall rate of abortions has been in steady decline since the 1980s. And that's been true under both Republican and Democratic administration. Abortion actually reached its lowest rate since the passage of Roe v. Wade in 2019. 
So these data are not perfect. Much of what affects the abortion rate has little to do with federal policy. State policy is even more important in some ways. And there are a ton of factors that influence the rate of abortion. According to Snopes.com, it says multiple factors influence the incidence of abortion, including the availability of abortion providers, state regulations such as mandatory waiting periods, parental involvement laws, and legal restrictions on abortion providers, along with increasing acceptance of non-marital childbearing, shifts in the racial and ethnic composition of the U.S. population, and changes in the economy and the resulting impact on fertility preferences and access to healthcare services, including contraception. That was a mouthful that just begins to express some of the complexity about what causes or decreases abortion rates. So there's no single reason for the decline in abortion rates, but we should highlight a few important factors. First is the increased use of contraceptives. And the fact that Obamacare made contraceptives part of health insurance for, for some insurance providers. And it meant that women had more access to affordable contraceptives. It also it bears note that teen abortion rates are down significantly. Much of this can go back to comprehensive sex education. Comprehensive as opposed to quote unquote abstinence only sex education. So comprehensive sex ed teaches safe sex, that is, how to use contraceptives, and abstinence only emphasizes avoiding sex altogether as the best way to prevent unexpected pregnancy. And of course it is, but teenagers as well as grown folks still have sex. So no matter what we prefer was the reality, we have to deal with the actual reality. Uh, we also have to deal with another reality. The cultural attitudes on abortion have shifted. So to Mueller's point and many other conservatives, many Democrats and liberals have moved from uh, safe, legal and rare, according to President Bill Clinton in the 90s, to pro-choice activists fighting to ensure that every woman has access to abortion if she wants it. And even some calling access to abortion a human right. Now, whatever, wherever you fall on that, just all I'm saying is that the conversation uh, from many of the prominent Democratic politicians have shifted further toward a, a more permissive stance toward abortion. And that's what a lot of conservatives are supposedly reacting to. We can also look at uh, the Democratic, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, and his recent shift from supporting the Hyde Amendment. Hyde Amendment says that Medicaid funds cannot be used to pay for most abortions. And now Biden uh, recently switched his position to oppose the Hyde Amendment. So obviously abortion, abortion is a contentious issue, especially for Christians who read scripture and verses that say that God knitted us together in the womb and uh, we consider the lives of unborn babies sacred. But we also need to face the reality that making abortion illegal will not stop abortions. It might only make them more unsafe. In addition, we have to acknowledge that what truly reduces abortion is complex. But in general, having better health care, stronger social support systems, those kinds of things reduce the fear of parents who are concerned whether they'll be able to support a child. And all of this means that overturning Roe v. Wade and or appointing conservative judges who will increase abortion restrictions those aren't the only ways to support the unborn. In fact, those measures do not conclusively reduce the number of abortions. 
while expanded healthcare and financial safety nets actually do. In general, those protections that reduce the number of unplanned pregnancy and hence the abortion rate are generally supported by Democrats. Uh, the recent push for Medicare for all, just one example. My main point is this. If the goal is to reduce the number of abortions and preserve the lives of the unborn, then overturning a federal law is not the only way. It's probably not even the best way. If life is truly at the heart of this matter, then wouldn't you support the measures that actually reduce the number of abortions regardless of whether those member those measures come from a red or a blue side of the aisle? And why make abortion the single biggest issue? This is one thing that I constantly ponder. Now, I don't deny that it's important, a vital issue, but there are many other important causes as well. Fighting racial injustice in general, reforming criminal justice, improving public education, modifying immigration laws, uh, providing laws for climate change, uh, getting greater access to, to health care. But all of those seem traded for the possibility of an anti-abortion president opposing Roe v. Wade and getting enough conservative judges to overturn both state and federal laws on abortion. For white evangelical Christians, then, abortion has become a theological and political equivalent of the one-drop rule. The one-drop rule says that in the United States context, you are considered black or a person of color if you have even one drop of non-white blood. In contrast to other places around the world where there are variations and even separate racial categories for people of mixed race and ethnicity in the U.S., if you are not supposedly pure white, then you're black or a person of color. And there's no in-between. All it takes is one relative somewhere down the line for the one-drop rule to apply. Obviously, we can see the problem with this. Everyone is racially and ethnically mixed at some point in their family tree. That's because human beings are all human. We can procreate with people no matter their race or ethnicity. It's also because socially, the lines have never been completely clean or inviolable. Indeed, the rape of black women by white men has made the one-drop rule an absurdity. But the same kind of purity test applies on issues of abortion when it comes to white evangelicals. The powers that be in these circles have determined that if you do not agree with them, that not only is abortion is that that not only abortion is wrong, but that the only way or the best way to reduce abortions is through overturning Roe v. Wade and appointing conservative judges, then you're labeled a heretic. You're not theologically or politically pure enough to be orthodox. You violated their one drop rule for abortion. Now, so much more could be said. We haven't even talked about what pro-life really means, being pro-life from womb to tomb. We haven't talked about the history of conservative and especially white evangelical and conservative Catholic support of Roe v. Wade, how much of that was originally rooted in issues of taxation, taxation and segregation. Let me say this in conclusion. Every issue has ramification for other important issues. If you vote strictly on a politician's stance on abortion, then you are reducing the importance of their position on voting rights, criminal justice, the environment, so much more. Further, if you say that only the anti-abortion or supposedly pro-life party is the quote-unquote Christian party, then you've thrown virtually all black Christians under the bus. Now, it shouldn't go the other way either, that Christians make Democrats the only true Christian choice. 
because neither party constructs their platform in a perfectly morally consistent way or according to scripture. But what I urge you to consider is how your stance on abortion influences your political calculus and what that might mean for the 2020 election. Let's talk about the GOAT. This has been a really heavy episode talking about race and abortion and politics. So let's end on something a little bit lighter with a brief word on pop culture. Have you seen the new show, The Last Dance? According to ESPN, it is a 10-part documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the Chicago Bulls dynasty through the lens of the final championship season in 1997-1998. The Bulls allowed an NBA entertainment crew to follow the team around for that entire season, and some of that never-before-seen footage will be featured in the documentary. Uh, It centers on the team's star, Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time, or the GOAT. Don't at me, you LeBron fans. Don't don't even go there. Let's talk a little bit more about the series before I get into that. (laughs) What makes this series so remarkable is that they've had this footage for 20 years, more than 20 years. But only recently did Jordan give the green light for them to bring it to the public. Now, some speculate that it had to do with the Cavs winning their championship and talk of LeBron James eclipsing Jordan's legacy. But a deep dive article in ESPN, I think gives a more compelling analysis. And so the director is Jason Hehir, or Hehir, H-E-H-I-R. And he said that Jordan never saw himself living beyond the age of 50. Uh, The director figured that was connected to Jordan giving the green light to finally release this footage. And he said, I discussed that story with Michael. And I think it's because he cannot picture himself as slowing down. He can't picture himself as not being in peak form. So it's not that he had a death wish or that he was morbid. It's just that he couldn't fathom what an old man Michael Jordan would look like. The article goes on to say that doing a documentary, especially one purporting to be a definitive look at him, felt something like an old man would do at the end of his life. So the first couple of episodes came on recently on a Sunday night. They're, they're, they're showing two episodes per week of the 10 part series, which is very cruel because you have to wait a whole week to get to, uh, the next episodes. But I sat down and watched the first two episodes. And one of the stories that stuck out to me was about Scottie Pippen. There's really no Jordan, no six Pete, no legend without Scottie Pippen. But Pippen was almost criminally undervalued. He signed a seven-year contract with the Bulls, which is an unbelievably long contract. And at one point, he was the 122nd highest paid player in the league. Pippen was one of 12 kids and came from a tiny town in Arkansas. I looked it up, and according to the census, it now has less than 3,000 people. My hunch is that when Pippen signed that terrible contract, he was thinking of his family. He'd never had access to that much money. And like many players from similar backgrounds, he was thinking about how much relief he could provide for his family, not necessarily how much more money he could hold out for. Most of all, I appreciate this documentary series for the reprieve that it gives us from the novel coronavirus and the pressure of a pandemic. For me, as a kid who grew up in the Chicago area, 
And I was a teenager in the 90s. This series takes me all the way back, back to Bulls jerseys and starter jackets. And of course, the Air Jordan shoes, which I never had, but other people did. And the nostalgia of watching this dynasty for nearly a decade when, when in the 90s, it's just unparalleled. And so me calling Jordan the GOAT, uh, for male basketball players in the NBA, it's, it's unabashedly and unapologetically connected to my experience watching him growing up. I mean, I just can't even describe the phenomenon he, he was and is, especially for folks who are in that area. So, you know, it is what it is. But I think also what makes the goat is an influence that goes beyond the game. So obviously stats are one part, but records are made to be broken. There's going to be another higher scorer. There's going to be folks who win more championships, et cetera, et cetera. But is that it? Is it just a numbers game? I think what makes Jordan the GOAT for many people is that he his influence went far beyond the court. Uh, from the shoes, which even two decades after he retired, they're still trendsetting. Uh, to the fact that he made a funny movie, a hit movie in Space Jam. I think you can stream that now. To the song, you guys remember, Like Mike. I'd like to be like Mike. Oh, I want to be like Mike. You remember that. Anyway, Jordan, he's he's a cultural icon. It goes way beyond basketball. Even the silhouette, right? You can picture the Jumpman silhouette. It's incredible. And I think you need that influence to really qualify as the GOAT in any sport. Anyway, debates aside, this is welcome amusement and distraction. We're dealing with a whole lot of heavy, sober, life-altering issues right now. We can use a little glimpse of the past and of a segment of our culture that takes us back for some of us. And for others of us, it might be the first time. Um, but it lets us return to and remember a time of happiness and remind us that there's goodness in life, too. So kick back, relax, and enjoy the documentary, The Last Dance. That's it for this week. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co. Help us raise a million dollars for black Christian ministry. Also, like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby, one facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, both at Jamar Tisby. Remember, you can contact me via email at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's footnotespod and the number one at gmail. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, and our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.